Welcome to the Waterways World podcast, brought to you in association with ABC Leisure Group, operators of hire fleets and marinas around the UK. Hello and welcome to the Waterways World podcast. I'm Bobby Cowling, the editor of the magazine. In this episode, we speak to Tony Jones, who was last a guest in the summer of 2021 when he provided an insight into residential boating, based on his considerable experience. At the time, I introduced him as a writer. Well, he has since become the in-house features writer for Waterways World and our various other titles. So it's great to have him back on to talk about pets on boats, a topic he knows a lot about, as well as discussing the practicalities of keeping animals on board craft. We also hear about some of the more exotic species you might find living afloat, or perhaps even in the wild. So, let's take a listen. When it comes to pets on boats, it's fairly clear that the most popular choice is dogs. I'm guessing for good reason, Tony. Well, you'd think there'd be good reason, but I haven't really been able to find what that good reason is, if I'm entirely honest. Um, that, but that said, there does seem to be disproportionately more dogs on boats than you see in the, in the general populace. Yeah. And, and I haven't been able to find a reason for it. Um, mm. You know, apparently there's around about 8 million dogs kept in the UK. And it seems like a decent proportion of those are on the water for some reason. I, I don't know why. Well, um, you've got a dog. You should be able to give us some insight. That dog forced himself into my lifestyle against my better judgment, I'll have you know. Really? Um, <laughs> yeah. This is Pog, who's, who um, is featured in many front covers, I think, of Waterways. He yeah, always seems that's... to be on there in, the, in some corner or other. That's a, that was a little bit strange. When I joined the team at Waterways World, obviously I got access to your archive of photographs. So, yeah. um, so I thought, okay, let's, um, let's see which photographs they have of me. So I typed Tony Jones into the archive. And there was one photograph of me and about 15 of Puck. Yeah, so we, yeah. can see, <laughs> we can see where the, you know, where the bias lies. But, yeah, um, you know, I'd, I'd, you probably realise from working with me for a while that I've worked with uh, exotic animals for a long time. And yeah. my interest in dogs was absolutely minimal. Mm. And um, I didn't really want a dog. I didn't think my lifestyle would support a dog. But um, we met Puck when I was uh, living down in Cheddar. And um, where I was hanging about, there was a, a farm on one side of the property. And there was a hunt on the other side of the property. And this little white terrier kept turning up where we were and sort of fighting with the other dogs and stealing food and biting the humans and generally being a big old pain in the ass <laughs> so i i took some food in for him one day and he latched onto that and he wouldn't leave me alone so that was it that was me and puck with the, with the team then and we were kind of feral boaters hanging around on a boat and you know it was uh, it was quite an interesting first few years with him but he's, he's become quite a character and he's um yeah a lot How of people like you... that dog yeah, they do. How long have you had him for now? Uh, he's just turned 13 at the end of last month, would you believe? Oh, so, right. um, yeah, but he still looks kind of puppyish because he's, uh, he's a white dog and he's still quite athletic and fit. We keep him in good shape. And because he's white, you can't see his grey hair. But right. yeah, he's, he's pretty cool. Um, and uh, for a guy who never really wanted a dog, we're, we're, we're pretty close now. So. Yeah. Are, are there any drawbacks to having a, 
a dog on board a boat, particularly as a residential boater? Well, not really. Not any more than there is a, a drawbacks to having dogs in, in, in houses, of course. You have to cater for them if you're going away and things like that. I suppose on a boat, there's um, ad- the added issue of storing um, their kit in a place where space is limited anyway. Um, mm. But, you know, that's, that's not really a big deal. The only real drawback of having a dog on a boat is when we're traveling along, what we tend to do is we put Puck on the roof and he'll sort of walk up, up and down the roof looking around, surveying his territory. But every time we travel a half mile, he, th- he thinks he's in a new territory and therefore he needs to pee on the chimney. So every oh, half a mile okay. he'll look around, oh, look, new territory. Let's mark my territory, pee on the chimney. So right. that's really how our cruises go. Every half a mile, Puck thinks he has to pee on the chimney. I suppose that's a drawback. Yeah, that is a drawback. But generally, <laughs> it's a lifestyle that's well suited to dogs. Absolutely. And I think as a liverboard, it's particularly suited. And and this is the conclusion I came up with when I was thinking about why so many boaters have dogs. And of course, as a liverboard, I, I think in liverboard terms quite often. And a lot of boats simply aren't big enough to fit a, another human on board. So if you're looking for company, a, a, a dog is a good option. And for a lot of people, a dog's not even a, a, a good second option. It's the plan A. Is a you know, a lot yeah. of people like dogs, especially yeah. boaters in liverboards. A lot of people like dogs more than they like humans. So, uh, so that's a good reason for having a dog aboard. Yeah. Are there any safety concerns, though? I wonder. Uh, yeah, a little, a little. Um, Puck's fallen in the canal a few times, and um, it, it is always a worry. He seems, although he can swim. Um, he seems to freeze when he falls in. He gets a bit of a shock and, and he looks always looks a bit indignant and frightened when we take him out sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, that, that's a consideration. And, that's a, and, and the biggest consideration really is when the canal is iced and, uh, and looks like land if there's snow on it. So uh, mm. a few times I've seen dogs go in under, under those circumstances. Um, wow. And beyond that, we've got the issue that I see quite often and, you know... Uh, Every dog's different, but I always get a little bit worried when I see a dog tied on a lead on the back of a boat. I'm, I'm always worried that it's going to fall over the end and come, come to mishap on the back end of the boat. And I have heard stories of that happening. But, you know, but it's, uh, it's, every, everybody knows their own dog, and therefore it's your own judgment as to whether or not you think that's a good idea. Yeah. Personally, Puck walks up and down the roof of the boat, and some people take exception to that and say, "Oh, we'll fall in." But he doesn't fall off the roof; he's quite careful. the mm. The only time he ever came near to falling off the roof was when we first had our tilting solar panels fitted, and uh, he mistook this tilting solar panel for something he could um, climb up on. <laughs> and as he climbed on it, it tilted and basically slid him off the end of, oh, end of no. the solar panel. Yeah. He he, uh, he caught his feet, but um, yeah, I think a little bit of wee came out. He was not happy. <laughs> Is it true that some breeds of dog can't swim? Well, can't swim or have difficulty swimming. Um, right. I, th- I think they can all actually swim to a degree, but it's not, a lot of breeds aren't very good at it. And it's, it's down to their breed physiology. It's usually down to the uh, physical um, kind of features the dog has as part of its breed. So we're looking at dogs with flat faces, short legs, stocky build, and long hair. So the, the flat faces make it difficult for them to breathe and to get their head out of the water. 
Um, the short legs mean that they can't build up enough momentum and strength and power to keep themselves afloat. And, and that's similar with stocky build as well. Um, if they're just a big dog with relatively smaller legs, then, um, you know, I'm thinking staffies, pugs, things like that. Um, right. But also long hair, dogs that can get really waterlogged and the long hair either creates a weight, of course, or gets in their face and, and stops them breathing very well. So, yeah, it's it's important to know whether your dog can swim well or not. Um, Puck will walk into the water and swim wonderfully when he's in the water, but he won't yeah. dive into the water. He won't jump into the water. Dogs such as pugs, bulldogs, boxers, dachshunds, and apparently shih tzus, and, and, and many, many others apparently have trouble swimming. Ah, okay. So maybe, yeah. maybe if somebody was living on a boat and was considering getting a dog, maybe that was that's something for them to consider. Yeah, pick your breed for certain. Um, breed. I didn't, I didn't really get a chance to pick Puck, I have to say, but um, he he picked me. But uh, thankfully, he's a good swimmer, so that's good. <laughs> that's great. So, Tony, are there really no downsides then to having a dog on a boat? Well, sorry. Oh yes, downsides. Vicky's just come up with another downside. If you'd like to have it, yeah, go on. Um, so. I didn't consider it a downside of having a dog and a boat, but when Vicky moved aboard, um, Vicky's a lot more domesticated than Puck and I. We're both still a little bit feral. And yeah. apparently um, the mud that Puck picks up on his feet and walks all over the boat is a downside, right. according to Vicky. Yeah. It wasn't a downside for me and Puck previously, but apparently that's a downside now. Yeah, yeah. As long as so, it's just as long as it's just mud, though. That's. It, I mean, it could be worse, right? Well, it often is, and that is probably the biggest issue of not only dogs on boats, but the biggest issue of narrow boating canals and um, and living aboard. When people is. is dog poo. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. When people, when we talk about our lifestyle as liverboards, it, it often sounds very idyllic and very uh, pleasant, and and people say, "Oh, it must be wonderful." What are the downsides? And of course, there are, there are several, but the biggest one for me is the proliferation of dog poo. I, f- I find it mm. really difficult. Um, I do, I do, yeah, yeah. I cannot abide it. I remember being on the um, on the Lancaster Canal in Preston. And it's quite a kind of a, a nice urban setting. So there's um, kind of, as I remember, it's brick Victorian terraces with gardens down to the canal. And it's quite nice yeah. for an urban area, except their towpath was just covered in dog mess everywhere. And it's just ruined the, the just, I didn't want to be there, you know, it's just, it was horrendous. And you've had experiences of like get, getting it on your, on uh, ropes and stuff like that. And... <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's all, that's almost so common as to be unremarkable now, getting it, getting it on the ropes. Um, mm. And it, it's always unpleasant, but that happens. And, of course, just treading in it is an issue. Um, I've also found it on the back of my, on my back deck, um, which I originally thought was somebody making a protest, thinking it was my dogs, uh, but it was just too neat and well-formed and obviously deposited there, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and similar to your experience in Preston, I've found, I've found several 
places that are just um, overrun with it. And and what it seems to me is that there's a particular resident with a particular dog that does that route and never picks it up and it just accumulates. Um, right, yeah. Uh, we yeah. used to call the area just near... Um, just near Silsden in on the Leeds and Liverpool, we used to call that Dog Poo Alley because it was a you know it was an assault course trying to get back to the boat without tripping on it. Yeah. One, yeah. one of the things I did realise, I did find out, I found the answer to uh, a big mystery by living on a boat. And um, yeah. what happened was we at first we made a, a resolution that we simply wouldn't shout at people we saw not picking up after their dog because. Yeah that that would be our entire life then if we just shouted at everybody who didn't pick up that would be our life but we were always a little bit puzzled about why we'd find dog poo bags in bushes and hanging on trees etc and i didn't know what the answer for that was until until i moved onto the boat which is and, what well what i saw was that some people didn't want to pick up their dog poo and of course we didn't mm. shout at those people but they would pick it up if somebody saw them if somebody saw their dog doing it then mm. they take the time to pick it up. But as soon as those people were out of sight, they'd get rid of it and just throw it in the hedge because they didn't want to carry it. Wow. So that's why you see it in hedges and, uh, right. and in so trees. Just, they do it for show and then just just get rid of it. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, Very that's helpful. I mean, you're halfway there once you've bagged it. I mean, it's no, it's no more effort than just to carry it and put it in a bin, is it, really? Well, you'd think so. You'd oh, think yeah. so. Um, to, to be honest, I can't speak of it. It is it is the biggest bane of my existence yeah, on I the find canals. It. Well, I a um, bit of a deviation, but there was a park. I mean, I, I, we probably shouldn't talk too much about dog mess, so maybe I should move <laughs> on. Um, so we've done we've done dogs, uh, which uh, are you know kind of ideal boating companions in many Absolutely. ways. Absolutely. Um, what about cats on boats? For me. I mean, we, I see, I've seen them from time to time, but I imagine they're not well suited to the boating environment. Is that the case? Well, it, it really depends. I mean, all all of these things aren't kind of polarized. Dogs are good, cats are bad. It's um, the, there's nuance and there's uh, and there's grey areas all over these these conversations. And of course. what what I think is. With regard to cats, what I think it really is is it depends on whether you cruise a lot or not. And mm. on the whole, if you cruise, so if you're a hirer or if you're a continuous cruiser, it's difficult to have a, a cat that you let outdoors because it will often roam. They um, Cats tend to explore in concentric circles. And so each day they'll go further and further afield. And um, if you're a hirer and you've got to get the boat back to a, a hire base and your cat just happens to go off on his jollies for an extended period and isn't back yet – that creates a conundrum. Do you take the boat back or do you leave the cat? And mm. this is why a lot of hire companies will allow dogs but won't allow cats. Oh, right. Okay. Continuous cruisers, assumedly, would have a similar problem. However, I do know several um, continuous cruisers and, and liverboards who travel a lot that, that routinely take their cats with them and seemingly have no problem. And it's, it's really down to the individual cat and its training, etc., have those cats been brought up in a boat environment or have they been introduced to it? I'm really not sure. I, c I couldn't say. Mm. I just know that there are several um, cats out there doing the rounds with their continuous cruising um, boating buddies. So, yeah. And they're happy with that. So yeah. maybe a cat could work then. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there are plenty of cats um, living in marinas, living on permanent moorings that um, that do just fine. The the only kind of provision you have to make for a cat is to give it some opportunity to be able to climb out of the water if it falls in. Mm. Um, we're used to seeing cats walking along the gunnels and, um, you know, in, inevitably cats will fall in. So what a lot of people do is they nail uh, a piece of carpet to some lengths of wood to create a kind of floating ladder so that the cat can oh, okay. crawl out and they'll hang that off the back of their boat and then their cat can crawl out if they if they take a dip. Mm-hmm. However, if we want to get really contentious, we ought to talk about the problems that cats cause in the wild environment. Okay, go on. Interesting. Well, as invasive species go, cats are by far the worst invasive species problem for um, ecologies and environments all over the world. So, for example, um, in a six-month period of um, a study done by the Small Mammals Association, in a six-month period, the British population of approximately 9 million cats was estimated to have brought home around 92 million prey items in that six-month period. So, the first thing to consider... I think half of those are my next-door neighbour's cat. It's so prolific... This is based on the numbers that are bought home. This isn't based on the numbers that are killed and left. This is based on the numbers that are bought home, prey items that are bought home. So 9 million cats bought home, 92 million prey items in six months. That's 57 million mammals, 27 million birds, and 5 million reptiles and amphibians. Legally, cats should be kept indoors. But of course, no one has the appetite to enforce that law. Um, is that true? I didn't know that. So, well, um, you're not allowed to let any any animal into the into the wild environment that's likely to cause damage to economy or ecology, and cats quite obviously do. Right. So, but no, but nobody's interested in enforcing that because the people who would want to enforce it would be welfare, animal welfare organisations, and animal rights organisations, and all of those organisations are funded by people who keep cats. So. Waterways World has been Britain's best-selling canals and rivers magazine since 1972. In each monthly issue, you'll find the latest waterway news, practical advice on boat buying and boat ownership, reviews of the latest craft and equipment, a pull-out cruising guide to help you plan your next trip, first-hand accounts of Waterways Live, and insights into the history and heritage of our canals and rivers. For subscription offers, visit waterwaysworld.com, where you'll also find a searchable magazine archive, our interactive Ask an Expert Advice section, and our boat search feature, the most comprehensive listing of canal boats for sale you'll find online. That's waterwaysworld.com. What other animals are well suited to boating life? Well, really, that's dependent on size. Any animal of a... a of a reasonable size can probably be kept on a boat. Mm. So when I was researching um, information for the narrowboat guide, I spoke to lots of pet owners and small mammals were really popular. So hamsters, guinea pigs, even chinchillas were, uh, yeah, they're pretty cool animals for for boaters. They're um, really inquisitive, really interesting, um, relatively easy to keep. And uh, so if you're looking for something unusual, certainly consider a chinchilla. Yeah. What, what is a chinchilla? 
chinchilla. It's a small furry mammal um, okay. with the most amazing springy legs um, and the, the most um, gorgeous plush soft coat. They're a pretty gorgeous animal. Forgive my ignorance. I'd, I'd certainly know one if I, if I saw one. But uh, yeah. did you know that keeping pets on board was, well, certainly in the... Um, in the mid uh, ninety, uh, mid twentieth century, apparently almost all working boaters had a dog on board, and if not a dog, then often a a bird in a cage, which they'd, they'd sit on the roof of the boat. So it was a, it's kind of a, quite a traditional thing, I guess, keeping pets on boats. Yeah, part of the culture. Absolutely. Well, saying about um, birds aboard, I, I've also seen a disproportionate number of um, of parrots and, and and related bird species in uh, in boats. There seem to be, mm. and I don't know if that's because we see them um, sat out on the roof while they're cruising along, or um, on, in the cratch, what you know, enjoying the sunshine. But uh, there do seem to be a whole load of parrots on board. I think a parrot suits a boat, doesn't it? I mean, it suits the... <laughs> it's almost pirate-like. Yeah, it's the right context. And um, would they be happy on a boat? I mean, you don't have to allow them room to exercise. Well, yes, you, yes, you do. But that can be easily achieved inside the boat. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you wouldn't want to fly them outdoors. But giving them a chance to exercise. The, the thing with parrots is that they're so inquisitive and a lot of species are very social. And so it's just that interaction that you get with a with a parrot that makes either a happy parrot or a, or an unhappy parrot. Mm. You know, back in the um, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, that was the era when parrots were really well looked after and, and happy. You'd, you'd usually have a mum staying at home. She'd have the parrot out. She'd give it something to do. She'd feed it little tidbits. Um, it'd sit on her shoulder while she she does the chores mm. and things like that. And you had this constant interaction because that's what parrots crave. They're, uh, they're flock animals. The, the modern problems occur because when people buy a parrot, they expect to have this animal that's going to sit in its cage most of the time, say the occasional swear word and and, you know, and and then sort of recite Shakespeare or something, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and and otherwise keep out of the way, yeah. and and that, and that doesn't happen. The interaction that you need to have with a parrot is uh, is quite significant. A friend of mine runs the parrot sanctuary at Lincolnshire Wildlife Park. He can tell me when a parrot's been a pain in the backside for a significant period of time, because when it speaks, it sounds like it's um, in the next room. Because what happens is parrots go downhill because they get upset and they start screeching and calling and the noise is too much for the owner to handle. So then they relegate the parrot to the furthest part of the house. And so the parrot can only hear speech that's very muffled from a room away. Oh, so every right. time the parrot speaks, it sounds a muff it sounds muffled like it's in the next room. And that's how you can tell. Yeah. So parrot, you have to you have to as you sort of emphasize there you have to interact with it and more than you'd expect so it's really good for i don't know liverboards that um that are going to spend a lot of time at home mm. and, and in fact that's true of people who don't live aboard you know if you're going to have a parrot you need to spend a lot of time with it yeah what, what other animals do we see on boats tony <laughs> um all kinds um rabbits are popular aren't they rabbits yeah we know somebody who had a rabbit aboard yeah, don't we yeah so henshaw yes who um i think that was a lob was it a lop-eared rabbit you'd know that's right it was yeah it's quite a cute quite a cute little thing as well i mean my experience with rabbits is limited as a reptile keeper you understand but that was quite a nice that was quite a nice looking rabbit yeah 
I should point out that we're talking about former WWE deputy editor Sarah Henshaw, who, while running a narrowboat-based bookshop, had a rabbit aboard, which I uh, I remember her once describing as brilliant customer luring collateral, <laughs> because parents would bring their children along to pet the rabbit and obviously buy books. Um, though it also did eat a lot of stock. That's right. I heard it chewed some quite expensive titles, according to Sarah. Yes, and accrued some expensive veterinary bills as well. <laughs> but again, indoor parrots, sorry, indoor rabbits are, uh, are quite a good idea now um, because they're, they're afforded much more space than the traditional outdoor hutch setup that people used to have Mm. the whole hutch thing is going out of favor now rabbits need a whole lot more room than we remember when when we were younger and so an indoor rabbit that's treated very much like an indoor cat or dog is um is very much the way to go so if you're asking me for another good indoor um boat pet i'd put rabbits on that list yeah i can imagine that working they're obviously you can't house train a, a rabbit you can to a degree can you? Interesting. Can to a degree, yeah. But that's the, that's the worst thing I can imagine having to contend with with a rabbit on board. No. Is that the case? No, I can beat that. Go. So um, I before I ever lived aboard, I had a friend whose name I shall not mention, um, <laughs> but he lived on a boat on the Lancaster Canal, and he had one of the UK's most significant collection of venomous snakes on yeah. his boat. Wow. Believe it or not, <laughs> hardly hardly that anybody knew about the collection, um, but I, I knew about it. And um, yeah, how many did it? How many did this collection comprise? Um, upwards of thirty, quite often. Oh my words! I'm scared of snakes. So that's <laughs> the idea of a boat with thirty snakes on board. I've seen it. I've seen the film Snakes on a Plane. So I was going to say, yeah, yeah, snakes <laughs> somewhat on a plane. similar. Just slower paced. Richard was quite a character, I can tell you. But his um, his ability to keep snakes and keep them safety safely was exemplary. So, right. in reality, it was um, it, it was no big deal. But I think, in terms of novelty, it, it was quite something. I did um, I did also get in touch with a guy just after I published my book. Um, who got in touch and said, hey, someone told me that you know about reptiles and I'm just about to move onto a boat and I've got an adult green iguana. He said, is, is that at all possible? And um, we had a big long chat about what he'd need to do in order to make it work and in order to provide the right husbandry and welfare standards. And while it was technically feasible, it just smelled like a really bad idea from start to finish. And in the end, he re- rehomed his iguana. Right. But, okay. um, yeah, it's quite a significant undertaking to keep an iguana in a house. So to keep it in a boat just turns it up to 11. Do you, do you need special heaters or lighting? You need special heaters, you need special lighting, you need lots of space, you need the ability to clean them out because they produce quite an, a large amount of, um, of feces. Um, yeah. you, the most important thing is you need ultraviolet light. I was um, going to say. And they're power hungry, aren't they? They are very power hungry, um, and as are the heaters, of course. Um, yeah. You also need uh, very specific nutrition for an iguana. Um, the, the reptile pet trade used to bring in a vast number of iguanas um, back in the 
late 80s and early 90s when reptile keeping was becoming popular. And so many people wanted one of these green dragons as a pet, uh, me included. And um, we very quickly realized that we were uh, that we were keeping uh, small dinosaurs that wanted to kill us that were very difficult to care for and very difficult to feed correctly and very, very difficult to handle. And Mm -hmm. so um, and so eventually the reptile pet trade made a decision to stop bringing in green iguanas in in those kind of numbers and instead to promote um, more um, easy to keep reptile pets such as or lizard rather bearded dragons and leopard geckos which are which are definitely smaller and easier to keep than iguanas and and a much better idea and so you you very rarely see iguanas for sale now Mm. and it's not something you you'd come across on or you'd expect to come across on a boat no, no, no. I, I would be no. very surprised if anybody was to listen to this podcast and then say, hang on a minute. Yeah, I've got an iguana. That would be a big surprise. It's <laughs> a story. Hey, what about what about tropical fish? I mean, I was just thinking about the power considerations. Do you yeah. think you could keep tropical fish on a boat? Well, people do. I've met a couple of people okay. who do, but under very specific circumstances. Um, again, these are boats that don't go anywhere usually. It's usually boats that are moored up. Yeah. If you're traveling along with tropical fish, then then you're asking for 20 different problems um, in terms of power, certainly, but just keeping the water where it's supposed to be. Yeah, that's a, yeah. that's an issue. You know, if you're going to bounce off a mooring or off a lock gate, um, your fish aren't going to be very happy. Are there any pets that aren't remotely suited to the boating environment? I tried to think, and apart from the constraints of size, there's nothing that I can think of that couldn't or shouldn't be kept. I think it's essentially down to welfare, and um, the only constraint that boats offer over um, a house is space. And so if you have space for the animal and you can provide for its welfare needs, then there is no reason why you you shouldn't keep them. I've been having occasional conversations with Vicky about whether or not we should get a meerkat. (laughs) She's not having it yet. Um, Yeah. I've not convinced her, but I'm still working on that. Aren't aren't they quite a group orientated animal though? Largely the females, especially. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, you can keep You can keep a couple together and they, and they do. Okay. You you pick the right sexes and you pick the right animals and and it can be done. Um, to be entirely honest, um, it's not something that I've explored as deeply as I would if I was actually going to get one. But I do know several people who keep them. Um, in fact, a friend of mine that I was in touch with a, a couple of weeks ago, um, I sent him an email berating him for not responding, sending me the file that he was supposed to have sent me a, an hour or two ago. And then he sent me a photograph of his laptop that his meerkats had destroyed by pulling all the keys off. Right, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean they're lovely creatures, and obviously they're, they're quite in vogue at the moment, aren't they? Because of the that's right, and all that stuff. They are good fun, but the females are murderous little tykes. They uh, <laughs> they they're, they're really quite vicious. The females, especially, they they run a matriarchal group, and yeah. um, and the matriarchal female will uh, stop the other females from breeding, and if they do breed, their their children aren't likely to make it because the matriarch doesn't want any other bloodlines to persist. So you do have to be careful of things like that. But this is all part of understanding your animal, knowing knowing what it needs and and understanding its welfare, which brings me back onto your point. Are there any animals that shouldn't be kept? And 
the answer is yes. If you don't have the space or you don't have the knowledge or can't provide for their welfare needs, other than that, everything else should be should be allowed. You mentioned the popularity of iguanas in the late 1980s. Well, I was a child then, and I remember that turtles became very popular pets as a consequence of the teenage mutant ninja turtle craze. Um, And a lot of them ended up being released into the wild. This is something, this issue is something you know quite a lot about, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And the the first issue is pretty much that everything you just said isn't actually accurate, believe it or not. It's a it's a really good myth that oh, is it? Um, yeah. The first <laughs> myth the first myth is that the teenage ninja mutant turtles um fan thing made yeah. people buy turtles. Whereas actually the importation and the breeders and the wholesalers that I've spoken to um in the reptile trade, tell me that there was very little change in the numbers that were being sold. Okay. I think I think I should clarify what um, alongside fake, the work. Fake news from me there. Well, it's it's a it's a common myth, and like an, like mm. any invasive species, it's just out there propagating itself, making you know making making a making itself a pain in the ass all over the place. Mm. Um, I, I think I should clarify that alongside the work I do with um, Waterways World. Um, I also work for an organisation that advises the UK government and the EU government on everything to do with reptiles pertaining to welfare, invasive species, zoonotic diseases and, and, and things like that. So we kind of have to research these, um, these stories and these, uh, these issues when they arise. And the issue of turtles in the UK waterways certainly is, 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 a, is a big issue. It certainly happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first myth is that, they, um, is that they happen because of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle craze, and, and that's not true. Mm-hmm. What actually happened was, um, again, back in the early 80s and 90s, um, the reptile trade was bringing in thousands upon thousands of these tiny little red-eared and yellow-eared terrapins that were about the size of a 50 pence piece. And um, mm-hmm. they, were be- they were being sold. And then I think it was the late 90s um, when... Uh, the government said that you couldn't bring them in anymore because they were being dumped. A few had been dumped in rivers, etc. So what they did was they banned the sale, the transportation, and the breeding of this of this species red ears, and uh, says you couldn't do that. And so if you'd got a red ear terrapin and you wanted to, and you couldn't look after it anymore, you couldn't sell it. You couldn't take it to a rescue centre because they wouldn't have any facilities for it to keep it for the rest of his life because they couldn't move it on either. And so the only thing you could do with this red-eared terrapin was have it put down. Well, a lot of people didn't want to have their pet terrapin put down, so they decided to give it a fighting chance and and put it into the canal or into the river. And so that's why so many um, turtles ended up in the river. And the other consideration is that these animals aren't actually invasive they're what they're what we call non-native um yes they're out in the wild and yes they shouldn't be here but in order to be invasive something has to be damaging either to the ecology or the economy and yeah. redier terrapins just don't do either of those things they they can't breed in the uk the f- the furthest north they can breed is somewhere in mid-northern france if i remember quite rightly they they can't breed in the uk 
And the other myth is that they cause lots of problems because, of course, we know that they're not invasive. They don't cause problems to the ecology. But a lot of people think that when they see a duck disappear under the waterline or a duckling disappear under the waterline, that it's the turtles. And that's almost definitely not the case. It's inevitably uh, a pike that's done that. And oh, the fish, right. Yeah, for a very long time I'd hear this story and I'd tell people that they were definitely wrong. A turtle will under no circumstances ever be the, um, be the thing that took that uh, duckling underwater. And this was the thing that we always used to say. And then about a year ago, I spoke to a friend of mine who was doing some research into, um, into non-native turtles. And he said he watched a turtle take a duckling off the waterline. But... In our 35 years of working with reptiles, that's the only one we've ever seen. Yeah, so it's not a common occurrence. No. no. Excellent. Um, Tony, I sort of feel like uh, we're coming to the end, really, a natural end, but is there anything I have, haven't mentioned that's worth... Well, not really in terms of uh, pets aboard, but I feel I ought to mention uh, a project that um, a friend of mine called Susie Simpson has organised. It's, a, it's a, a citizen science project called the Turtle Tally. And what she's doing is she's researching what's happening to the turtles that are in the UK waterways, um, mm. what effect they're having on, um, on the ecosystems, and more importantly, the numbers and species that are involved. Um, and the first thing is, this is a purely um, observational study. Nothing's going to be done to the turtles that you observe or, or, that you, or that you report. But what she's asking is that um, if you see a turtle on the inland waterways, that you go onto the website Turtle Tally and you, um, yeah, Turtle Tally, and you report where you've seen it. And if you can identify it, then that's great. But if you can't, you can just send a photo and, um, and the guys and the girls at Turtle Tally will... Um, will identify it for you. And it just adds to the science and the data and the information that we have about non-native species in the in the UK's waterways. Yeah, which is an important thing, isn't it, for the for the future wildlife of the of the waterways and the surrounding the surrounding areas. Always. I think the more that we know about the situation, the better. And as, as we've already realised, the, the myths and the misinformation are often more prolific than the actual science. And so what this is, it's an opportunity for us to fully understand and appreciate what's happening, what's occurring and how much of a problem it is. And um, Susie's doing some great work there. So if we can support Turtle Tally, that would be a good thing to do. It's nice that the, it's nice that the Venn diagrams of my boating life and my <laughs> reptile life have overlapped a little bit yeah well it's great because it's allowed us to talk about this topic which uh, which has been fascinating so go. tony yeah thank you so much for your time this evening um yeah it's been fantastic talking to you and it's uh, been very interesting i'll let you know when we get our meerkat and you can we can do it <laughs> as well absolutely yeah <laughs> thank you very much bobby For 45 years, the ABC Leisure Group has been at the forefront of the waterways leisure industry. With 15 strategically placed marinas around the UK, it has hundreds of moorings with modern facilities and a range of benefits. ABC also runs a successful and competitive boat brokerage business. See abcboatsales.com, as well as over 200 luxury hire boats and day boats. Visit abcboathire.com. Furthermore, it offers a range of land-based holiday accommodation, including waterside holiday cottages and caravan parks. 
visit abcholidaycottages.com.